Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series dedicated to reflection on contemporary religious issues. In this episode, graduate student Emily Judd interviews Yale Divinity School professor and Andover Newton Seminary Dean Sarah Drummond. Dean Drummond weighs in on the dynamics between business, leadership, and religion. She reveals how the religious world influenced the field of modern business. Faith communities are the older sister to business as we know it now. Dean Drummond gives advice on how business and religious leaders can successfully implement change in organizations and communities. If you don't have something just as good to put in their hands as that which you're asking them to give up, to expect people to change is just crazy. And Dean Drummond gets candid about the contemporary problems facing religious leaders, like the sexual abuse crisis confronting the Catholic Church. It's not about sex. It's about power. And abuse of power is something that comes with power that lacks accountability. Welcome, Dean Drummond, to the podcast today. Thank you, Emily. I'm so so, uh, honored to be invited to participate. So you teach courses on ministerial leadership at Yale Divinity School and train future church leaders. What's the most common mistake that you see church leaders making today? As I think about the mistake that's most common, I'm really focusing on mistakes most common for Yale graduates and people like Yale graduates who have been trained to believe that being right is all that matters. And if you're right, then you if you're right, then you can say whatever you want and do whatever you want and the person with whom you're interacting that they're a whole person doesn't really matter. And right now, when I look across the political landscape of the United States, I see religious leaders getting into all kinds of frustration and all kinds of trouble with their communities, because rather than connecting with people, they are trying to point out how right they are or how wrong another person is. And even if it just so happens that the faith community and the religious leader agree, nobody likes to feel judged. And if they feel like their religious leader might turn around and judge them next, they won't be able to form a trusting bond and relationship. So it's really hard to tell people in world-class university settings that being right is only part of what it takes to be effective. But that is one of the messages that I really try to convey. Your book title, Dynamic Discernment, Mm -hmm. Reason, Emotion, and Power in Change Leadership. So The emotion part of it, because I know um, at Yale, there's actually uh, a center about emotional intelligence, and I was lucky enough to take one of their pilot classes, and I had never thought about emotional intelligence or how emotions can really affect leadership. So where does emotion come in in the book? What is kind of your conclusion about how emotion can be used? In my book and also in my teaching, I look really closely at emotional systems and the ways in which they preserve themselves no matter who's in the system, no matter what the individuals happen to be feeling. And I feel like every time I turn on the news, I'm seeing more evidence of the way one person's emotion can create a tidal wave of emotion. 
about how one person's equanimity can calm a whole community down. So in emotional systems, which are an idea more from the psychology and sociology world, adapted more to the religious world by Rabbi Edwin Friedman and then his eventual successor thinkers, we really take seriously that faith communities are an emotional system, not unlike a family. And there are certain patterns that become recognizable, almost predictable. One pattern is that emotional systems will protect their equilibrium, even if that equilibrium is really bad. Even if the emotional system is fraught and angry, one quote unquote problem might get solved, but another one will come up to take its place. And the effective. So, how do you break the cycle? The effective leader in the midst of an emotional system has to practice a variety of leadership um, techniques, most notably self differentiation, namely, you all can get as upset as you want, but I'm not coming along for that ride. And what Friedman calls detriangling. In my book, I write about detriangling as the way in which we refuse to accept responsibility for that over which we have no control. An emotional triangle would look something like this, Emily. I'll give you an example. Um, I'm upset with Tom Krattenmaker from <laughs> Yale's communication um, team, our director of communications. I'm upset with Tom, but rather than talk to Tom, I'm going to sit and talk with Emily about how ticked off I am at Tom. I feel great afterward because I got to be right. Venting. I got, I got, well, venting. Oh my gosh, what a useless activity that is yeah. because I just got all my negative feelings out. I feel better. Nothing's improved. And you, Emily, you feel worse. Yeah. So the way you would de-triangle is to say, Sarah, that's really, you know, you're, of course you're as usual, brilliant, fascinating, and correct, but I really feel like you need to talk to Tom mm -hmm. about these issues. So that's what conventional detriangling looks like. Mm -hmm. But I go the extra step of saying that this also has something to do with power and responsibility. Tom is a person who does not report to you. It's not appropriate for me to put all this junk and garbage on you. So you need to give the responsibility back to the person who has power. Namely, I'm the one who has power to do something about my negative feelings. Hey, Tom, if you're listening to this, I love you, man. I love you, man. You were just a really easy target for my example. I hope he appreciates the shout out. <laughs> um, so in stressing strategy, especially when it comes to church leadership, some people may say, are you turning church into business with the emphasis on, I, I know in your book, Holy Clarity, the subtitle is The Practice of Planning and Evaluation. Is there the risk of, by stressing evaluation of religious programs and organizations, that it's turning church into business? Business is a new concept in human history. Industry is a new concept, even in modern history. Community building started with and belongs to the church. And faith communities are the older sister 
to business as we know it now. And we can see throughout history really uncomfortable interactions with business from the day it began. Uh, John Calvin, who is credited or blamed, depending on how you think about it, for the concept of the Protestant work ethic. Martin Luther, the first to affirm that people who are not priests also are having a calling, and it's possible to be called to a business career, a business way of life. These ideas have never settled easily, and they still don't to this day. But I really resist the notion that having a goal and striving toward the goal is somehow a business idea. The idea that Jesus was telling us what the world would look like if that world looked like an adequate reflection of what God wanted for it. And Jesus told us that our goal is to make the world look more like that. The kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. Goal, goal, goal. In that kingdom, a little child will be, um, a little child will be um, having equal and perfect access to the resources of the community. In the kingdom of of heaven, there is no um, hate, there's no hunger, there's no poverty. Those were goals, and they were not equivocating. You don't have to look at the Bible with this really distorted lens to find a strong goal orientation. So in your book, Holy Clarity, you lay out an assessment strategy for leaders. You write, quote, We need to start out by looking at what we say we do. Then we need to learn what we actually do. Where we find areas of discrepancy, we need to make a choice. Do we change what we say or do we change what we do? This kind of ties into what you were just talking about. Which is more challenging, having to change the rhetoric or the behavior? Changing rhetoric to align it with our behavior induces a lot of grief, we form, we tell ourselves stories about ourselves. We form illusions in our minds about ourselves to which we become very attached. So losing those words go, does not, isn't accepted readily and easily in faith communities. In fact, that particular, um, that particular mantra, do I change what I say? Do I change what I do? In the work that I've done over these years since Holy Clarity came out, I've yet to hear a faith community leader say, well, we're going to change what we say. Mm. They always say they're going to change what they do. Mm. And I, I, I'm saddened by that, actually, because I do think that faith communities that try to do more than they can handle just feel really discouraged a lot of the time. People are so resistant to change. It just seems like it's part of our DNA. Like no one likes change. Yes. Yes. No one likes to be judged. Mm -hmm. No one likes to be treated like they're stupid and nobody changes without a deep sense of loss. And if you don't have something just as good to put in their hands as that, which you're asking them to give up to expect people to change is just crazy. And I have been just crazy so often especially in these past years, but really throughout my whole post-Yale life. And so in Holy Clarity, you also write, quote, not every leader actually wants to know what is happening in his or her institution. Right now, I think it's particularly relevant to my church, the Catholic Church in America, because of the sexual abuse crisis. The Catholic laity 
have discovered that some of the leaders purposely covered up abuse, but that other leaders didn't do enough, didn't investigate, and preferred not to look into what was going on. How can the people force their leaders to face the facts? I am so sorry for what your community is going through and has gone through. And I wish I could say that the faith tradition from which I hail has no worries along these lines, but it's not true. It's not true. There is so much blame to go around when it comes to religious leadership, not taking seriously the ways in which the power that comes with being a faith leader can be and often is abused. People really trust us and we mess up so often and do such horrible things because the power differential is so big between a person who is an authorized religious leader and a person who's being led. There's no excuse for it. There's no um, explanation that would ever be satisfactory. And what your faith community is going through is something that could just as easily be happening anywhere in the religious landscape. In the Roman Catholic Church in particular, there's a much bigger power differential between those who have control over who gets to lead and those who are led. In my denomination, where the hierarchies are flatter and leadership is more shared, the power differential isn't quite as big. But misconduct still takes place that we have to reckon with and where prevention and education are part of my life in a way they never would have been part of a generation ago because we just didn't get it. We just didn't get that it's not about sex. It's about power. And abuse of power is something that comes with power that lacks accountability, that lacks uh, lacks accountability and lacks the um, the bright shining light on that misuse of power. So how do the, how do the people who are being led hold the leader accountable? I actually think that the best resources that we have to offer come from the Catholic tradition, particularly in Latin America, around liberation theology. Mm-hmm. A liberation mindset would say that the people who are um, subject to power become conscious. And the people who have power also become conscious. And through dialogue, they start to recognize the humanity one of the other. The tough part is that those who are not in the positions of power can't force the one in position of power to become liberated. But they can themselves become conscious of the extent to which they have agency and I believe that's what's happening in the Roman Catholic Church now. I write in my, my book, Dynamic Discernment, that when you're the one who's on the receiving end of power, one way that you can open up dialogue is by looking to those with power for what I call in the book, pockets of possibility. Where do you see something that those in the position of power want that you also want and try to build a bridge around that shared interest. And one of your research interests is spirituality in early adulthood. How do you assess the state of spirituality for young adults in America? 
Um, I know that's a very broad question, but what is what's the general trend? Many people who are experiencing a sense of um, spiritual awakening are really concerned about questions about what they want to do with their lives and with whom they want to spend their lives. Religion isn't always immediately associated with how do I want to live my life, and I think it should be. The most interesting mission field, as far as I'm concerned, is the nominal Christian, the Christmas and Easter Christian, who was confirmed and never darkened the door of the church again, discovering that there's actually some really great stuff in this tradition to help them to live a more life-giving life and to help them figure out with whom they want to spend that life. And those are the questions of young adulthood. Second, young adults have been marketed to since they were in the womb. (laughs) And they are so sophisticated when it comes to their consumption of ideas and information that churches have to be extremely clear about who they are and what they believe. And trying to be all things to all people is actually incredibly unattractive to a younger person. And, you know, 10 years later, it's unattractive to me. I really like it when a faith community just gets out there. Even if I don't agree with their position on every single thing, I feel so much more comfortable if I just know who I'm dealing with and what what I'm what I'm um, about to experience. Well, Dean Drummond, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Emily. It's been a real privilege to be in this conversation with you.